Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. My name is Professor Lee Edwards. I'm a Professor of Strategic Communications and Public Engagement here at the LSE. And I'm really delighted to be able to chair the launch of um, Dylan Mulvin's new book, Proxies, The Cultural Work of Standing In. Um, it's going to be a really fascinating discussion, I'm sure. Um, we're going to start with Dylan, who will talk for around 25 to 30 minutes about the book. Um, and then we're really pleased um, to have two respondents, Tartan Gillespie and Kate McKinney. Uh, Tarleton is a senior principal researcher at Microsoft Research New England. He's part of the Social Media Collective Research Team, studying the impact of information technology on social and political life. Um, and his most recent book is Custodians of the Internet, Platforms, Content Moderation and the Hidden Decisions that Shape Social Media. And he also retains an affiliate professor position with Cornell University. And Kate McKinney is an assistant professor of communication at Simon Fraser University. They're the author of Information Activism, A Queer History of Lesbian Media Technologies and a 2020 special issue of First Monday on HIV, AIDS and Digital Media. So we're really pleased to have Tarleton and Kate with us to respond to Dylan. Um, but before um, I hand over to Dylan, I want to introduce him most importantly. So Dylan is a historian of media and technology and drawing on methods from media studies, science and technology studies, gender studies and disability studies. He investigates how standards, infrastructures and defaults encode and crystallize the assumptions about human perception and behavior. And it's a fascinating combination of uh, disciplines and insights that he brings to um, his latest book. He studies the ways, uh, he says, people make the stuff that we take for granted. Um, prior to joining the department, um, Dylan was a postdoctoral researcher at Microsoft Research New England, and he was also a member of the Social Media Collective, where Tarleton still um, is involved. So with that, Dylan, I'll hand over to you um, uh, and um, enjoy. Thank you, Lee. Uh, thank you, Tarleton. Thank you, Kate. Um, and thank you, everyone, uh, uh, for being here. Um, and a, sp a special thank you to Luam and Ben for helping organize a deep appreciation, as well as to uh, Zoe Glatt. Um, well, uh, this is the part of the talk where I would normally talk about color bars and market baskets and mock juries and crash test models, but um, I'm on home turf. Uh, and so I'm uh, taking the prerogative to do something um, slightly different, um, as well as to possibly be uh, uh, slightly um, hyperbolic. So I will share my screen and show you what I mean. Um, I, so when I say I want to be hyperbolic, what do I mean? Um, I mean, I think that we live, uh, in the age of the proxy. Um, what I mean when I say, uh, we live in the age of the proxy, it's not necessarily that we live with more proxies than ever, though maybe we do, but that rather issues of surrogacy and, um, delegation and the trust of, um, the labor of stand-ins are front and central, um, for, daily controversies and crises uh, of the present. Um, and though the book is kind of historically oriented around very stabilized proxies, right, standardized representations, things that come to stand in for a very long time, 
Um, I'm, I want to begin my thoughts today with thinking more expansively and, and about more ordinary um, stand-ins. So um, for those of you not living in the United Kingdom, um, this is uh, asparagus. Um, this is a solution that some supermarkets have taken in this country to the um, so-called supply crisis and uh, the Brexit-induced shortage of truck drivers and agricultural workers. And there was kind of a frequent uh, social media um, uh, 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 viral image of empty uh, store shelves that's now been replaced with these cardboard cutouts of the missing vegetables, right? And um, I want to argue that these cutouts as sort of proxies for the vegetables that aren't there um, paper over the gaps in a malfunctioning infrastructure. They help us to suspend disbelief, in other words, in the failure of our institutions. Oh, here's some sandwiches. Um, and I think for many scholars invested in the politics of information and data, right, discussions of proxies and stand-ins and proxification are also pretty common, right? We talk about training data and testing data and with the kind of eruptions around um, controversies that seem to be a result of that training data or those testing data, right? That we then see in kind of the noxious results of, of, of algorithmically um, oriented systems. Or we talk about data doubles, those kinds of um, uh, uh, profiles, those aggregated profiles that we, that get constructed of individuals from the kind of waste and exhaust of our online life. But if you've looked at the book or you've ever met me, you would know that the spirit of the proxies book is to think far wider, right? And far beyond databases and networks um, and, and the, the simple politics of data to think about the larger culture of standing in. So what would that mean looking at these sandwiches? Um, I think it would mean taking these cutouts seriously, not just treating them as the punchlines to a kind of absurd um, present, uh, but as artifacts of an attempt to literally fill in the gaps of our crumbling infrastructures and to treat them as starting points for understanding what we might think of as the um, performance of stability, right? And I'll, I'll come back to that again and again. But let's go further, right? Without leaving the grocery store, we can see the larger world of proxification. In the midst of the pandemic, the North American uh, grocery uh, shopping app, Instacart, has doubled its valuation two times, right? First from about $8 billion to 17.7, .7, and then again, $39 billion uh, uh, when it was raising capital in March and is worth a little bit more than that now. And what is Instacart or any of its um, UK equivalents, which have names like Wheezy and Getter and Gorillas? Um, what are these, if not proxies for our own trip to the grocery store? right, an increasingly fraught affair. Um, and I think if we consider grocery shopping alongside the appified economies of uh, workplace sharing and home sharing and ride sharing and even um, dog sharing, um, we have a, an entire kind of economy of standing in. Um, that, of course, immediately gets it kind of wrong because these the apps themselves and the companies themselves are not, in fact, the stand-ins, right? It's the people and the places that are the stand-ins. Um, these apps are brokers. They're brokers of a proxy relationship. 
And the, um, to perform that role of being a trusted delegate, right, the definition of a proxy requires a great deal of labor, finely tuned labor that gains and maintains the trust um, of those for whom uh, um, uh, proxies stand in, labor that's newly categorized as essential. It's no surprise then that the workers who um, work as a stand-in grocery shoppers um, are quitting en masse and ref uh, refusing to fill the labor shortage that exists, um, and in some cases unionizing, but that of course is also met with retribution. So yes, uh, this is a world of stand-ins marked by a kind of unfathomable scale of data, uh, the exploitations of an app-based um, economy, but it's also one that suffuses our popular culture, right? So again, thinking expansively about the kinds of stand-ins that surround us. Um, like other people during the lockdown, um, I spent some of my time uh, revisiting the entire Fast and Furious franchise. Um, uh, and if you're not familiar with the franchise, um, it is a nine film series about the magic of cars and family and masculinity. Um, but tragically, sometime before uh, the end of the seventh film, Fast and Furious 7, um, one of the franchise's stars, Paul Walker, uh, passed away in, in, a, in a car accident. Um, the production of that film was pushed back um, to try to find a way of, of recuperating what they had filmed of his performance. Um, and eventually finding a way of reproducing his appearance using what gets called AI tools um, that have been used elsewhere to reanimate other characters uh, in a slew of Hollywood films here, two cases from Star Wars, um, and just last month or, or the month before um, to use what, what gets called a deep fake technology to create a proxy voice of Anthony Bourdain reading letters that he had written but never read out loud. Um, the case of Paul Walker, though, was a little bit different. Um, and that's because the filmmakers used his uh, brothers, um, Caleb and Cody, uh, as, as stand-ins, collapsing their physiognomies together and overlaying them um, on their deceased brother's um, face. Um, I don't know why exactly I find this example so fascinating and, and gut-wrenching, um, but I think it's the intimacy of this standing in and standing for relationship. It's evocative for me of what makes a proxy relationship really um, a rich site of culture. And here the kind of delegation to a, a, a trustworthy stand-in is marked by a, a relationship of genealogy, right? Um, an almost kind of invisible eulogy, again, meant to smooth over the gaps in an unfinished uh, film. But like those um, Star Wars examples and the Anthony Bourdain example, right? A lot of people have act, reacted quite negatively to this use of synthesis, um, claiming that it's an example of the uncanny valley, that it's eerie, that it's a form of necromancy, um, and that it's simply inauthentic. What I want to argue then is that all of this, all of this is a part and parcel of the ethics and the politics and the aesthetics um, and the culture of standing in, right? And if you will allow me, I think that living in the age of the proxy requires utmost care in how we delegate um, and the attention 
um, that we pay to the materiality uh, and the labor of standing in. Those are the guiding ideas uh, behind the book. The idea being that by mapping these processes of delegation, of proxification, to use a kind of ugly word, we can map uh, um, how an institution works um, and how it's held together. So what is that book? Proxies, the book uh, begins in the Southwest of Arizona, uh, near the town of Yuma, where you can find a small town called uh, Yodaville. It has a town center and eight um, boulevards that radiate from the center of it. And it stands in stark contrast um, against the, the surrounding desert. Yodaville is totally empty. It's never been lived in. Um, and that's because uh, uh, unless you've just read the first 10 pages of my book, um, this will be news. <laughs> Yodaville is a test city. Um, and in the terms of the US military uh, who own and operate the town, uh, Yodaville is an urban target complex. Um, and it's also made of shipping containers, which again are those kind of or objects of global logistics themselves, um, uh, a kind of idealized stand-ins. Um, Yodaville was built in the 1990s. Let's get that there. Yodaville was built in the 1990s as a response to US military deaths in Mogadishu in Somalia. If you've seen the film or read the book Black Hawk Down as a result of that, um, the, the military saw that um, that failure um, was a result of bad training and in particular bad simulation and then more specifically um, uh, poor representations of the battlefields that they were likely to fight wars in. Um, they said at the time that their training towns were too European and that they needed, quote, uh, a new, this is coming from a RAND Corporation report, a new test city to reflect, quote, the chaotic environments found in densely populated areas of the developing world. Which is kind of grim. Yodaville, I argue in the book, is a kind of proxy city for the world out there, right? Imagining in here as the kind of corridors of standardization and knowledge production and performance standardization. So when the US military saw the edges of its empire strained by war and unfamiliar territory, they decided they needed better proxies. Sure enough, when they went to war in Iraq and Afghanistan a few years after Yodaville was um, built, it, it changed from anywhere uh, uh, in the developing world to a specific place. One colonel put it, if a pilot can drop a bomb and hit a target in Yuma, he can drop a bomb and hit a target in Iraq. They got heat, we got heat. It is the ideal place to train. So you can see, right, Yodaville began as a kind of pl uh, plastic or, or flexible proxy, any number of possible places, and further gets focused into um, particular places by highlighting features that bring the two places into a kind of a common relationship, the heat, the desert, etc. Um, so it can be, it can both be a kind of plastic stand-in, well-being, um, definitively one place, which is Yodaville, which can be shared as a reference point in evaluating the performance of soldiers. 
placed pointedly as well on the con on the border of the continental United States. Yodaville is just one of a set of a, a series of military encampments on the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, it's uh, uh, situated within the occupied traditional territories of the Quechan and the Cocopa, and it adjoins the Fort Yuma uh, reservation. Right. As such, it's both a stand-in um, for war elsewhere, while simultaneously serving um, as an instrument for sustained domestic occupation. And I think by serving that double function, I argue it embodies a very specific fantasy that we can see in the work of proxies um, to become without becoming, right, to mediate between meaning it can momentarily become a foreign war zone without ever actually risking any domestic occupations. This is part of the promise of proxies, the, the promise, in other words, of creating those controllable, controllable renditions of an unpredictable world. In the book, I begin with a broad and rather naive question that you can see in this example of Yodaville. To whom or to what do we delegate the power to stand in for the world. And to answer that question, I turn to a series of different tools, people, places that become fixed points, standardized proxies um, in the production of knowledge. Proxies, the argument goes, uh, act as models of the world out there um, and are necessary components in making an institution run, in producing knowledge, in keeping an institution afloat. Um, and to use the phrase of Hans Wehinger, they're necessary fictions. So the larger argument is that we use proxies to leverage a representation of our current world to foresee and craft a world to come. Proxies can only do so because of the continued work and embodied labor of the people who maintain proxies or, as in some cases, will come to act themselves as embodied proxies. So by building a kind of catalog of different proxies of turning to different institutions over roughly the 20th century, um, the book centers on human bodies, human labor, and makes the following arguments. Proxies are bodily. This is visible in the work of measurement and training that uh, relies on finely tuned embodied and relational practices. Proxies are both sticky and permeable, though in uneven ways. They're built almost always as labor-saving devices, a means to an end, a shortcut because you need a shortcut. Um, they stand in for worldly phenomena when we can't go and, 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 and test everything in the world. They inevitably, though, carry and leave traces of their cultural milieu and the places where they've traveled. And finally, proxies rely on a kind of suspended disbelief. So the scientific and technical expertise um, that I examine uh, throughout the book is formed and repeated through scenes of performance, where participants in these scenes act as if the stand-in were the real thing, that kind of necessary fiction, in order to get work done, right? It's something we all do. Uh, um. So beyond Yodaville, the book is structured around three additional cases of proxies that, and these are each cases that have lasted an inordinate amount of time, decades and decades and decades. It begins, uh, or the, the next chapter is, um, focuses on the international prototype kilogram or the IPK, which until just a couple of years ago 
was the last remaining physical artifact in the metric system, meaning the definition of mass was equivalent to this little piece of platinum iridium. And here I approach the lifespan of that um, standard measurement reference by examining the protocols, as you can see in this picture, for washing and cleaning the kilogram by hand. So when I was, um, I've been working on this project for 10 years. And when I started it, I was thinking a lot about measurement um, reference, uh, the standard meter, uh, standard kilogram, atomic clocks. And in that process, I found the moment in which the definition of mass changed, um, where it once said definition of mass is equal to the IPK. There was a moment in the 20th century where they added a comma when it said the definition of mass is equal to the IPK, comma, after washing and cleaning, um, which is quite a remarkable thing to see in a measurement standard. But because all metals are porous, um, that little piece of metal um, both kind of soaked up its surroundings and gave off um, some of its surface. And so we have these beautiful, incredible instructions for washing and cleaning a kilogram by hand to give it, quote, it's my favorite part, a rather handsome but not specular appearance, right? Rather handsome but not specular appearance. And my hunch, right, my hunch throughout this project has been if we can talk about kilograms in terms of handsome but not specular appearances, there's something inescapably uh, aesthetic and uh, affective and bodily about the ways we think of data and information. But to think about that outside of the realms we normally do, being the digital. Across the next two chapters of the book, I tell the history of now a quite infamous um, uh, test image, the Lena or Lena test images, which is one of the most widely used test images in existence. Um, it was digitized at the University of Southern California at something called the Signal and Image Processing Institute, or SIPI, uh, in 1973. Um, many people now know, but it's worth remarking, that this image is in fact torn or folded or cropped from the November 1972 issue of Playboy magazine. In fact, the centerfold of the image just above the model's bare breasts. It was uh, digitized on an analog to digital scanner and uh, turned into a 512 by 512 pixel picture of a woman in a hat, but remained um, um, for five decades and now is just waning in use um, as, a, as, a, as a kind of icon of the, Im of the uh, discipline of digital image processing, a kind of winking, knowing nod to those who recognized it. In my, in, across these two chapters, I document the environment in which uh, the Lena image could seem a possible solution to a range of problems, right? The need for a human face, uh, a desire for complex images, a desire for new images, because the, the engineers had been relying on recycled test images, um, and the apparent problem of an overabundance, according to the engineers, of so-called brain images. So there's a database, for instance, of tank and non-tank images. And here I look at how all of these needs, right, all of these claims of need um, be become uh, cover for importing mainstream softcore porn into the earliest days of network transmission. In fact, for honing the techniques of sending images online. Um, 
as I show in the book, the Lena image is just one node in a longer history of using the images of white women to calibrate image technologies. So you can see here um, that little uh, um, four pack of images is the is the uh, excerpt from the NTSC standard, um, which formed uh, a color television standard for most of the world for most of the 20th century. There's a Shirley card image of the woman with the fancy gloves, um, which was used to calibrate uh, a film stock. There's the so-called Jennifer in Paradise image, one of the earliest films to test and demonstrate images to test and demonstrate um, Photoshop. And all of these kind of maintain image standards that are honed to what we could call a prototypical feminized whiteness. Um, uh, and that I'm taking prototypical whiteness from the work of Simone Brown um, and Lewis Gordon and um, other many other media studies scholars have looked at the use test images. Genevieve Yu's work on so-called China girl images, Lorna Roth's work on Shirley cards, um, and, and Jacob Gabri's recent work on standard um, uh, images or standard objects. Um, finally, I, I look at how this work around the Lena image not only connected this history of feminized prototypical whiteness, but connected a set of um, research objectives around military guided research into artificial intelligence. So in this image here, you can see this is one of the earliest appearances of the Lena image in the research at USC. And what you can actually see is an edge detection algorithm, um, which is we would now call a kind of basic step in an, in an AI technique for identifying objects in an image. And this is the same algorithm basically running on um, two sets of images. Um, so there's the Lena image, obviously, and then there's this triptych of a tank a woman's face, an image often just called girl, and an aerial surveillance image. And it's worth underlining that this research was being conducted and paid for by the US military in the middle of the Vietnam War in an attempt to um, create techniques for automatically detecting enemies, right? And so what I want to argue is that this is a part of a, a kind of grammar of control um, that was being articulated through uh, test image proxies uh, in the, in the post-war period. The final case is the history of the standardized patient program, which began in the 1960s, also curiously at USC, and has transformed over um, the past 50 years into um, a required part of medical accreditation. So for those who don't know, uh, standardized patients are actors who embody the so-called normal uh, symptoms of illness or disability um, or disease um, in order to train uh, physicians both in diagnosis um, and in bedside manner. And the technique began in the 1960s and then kind of moved. It became quite popular in Canada um, uh, and became a, a formal part of the accreditation system right at the moment in which um, uh, malpractice lawsuits were kind of skyrocketing. And it was seen as a way of kind of entraining a new standard of empathy. So for me, this is a story of how human bodies can actually become uh, standardized proxies, right, and traces the way that those bodies, with all of their leakiness and porousness, and in some cases, stinkiness, um, have been trained by a medical establishment to act as relational instruments. And here I'm really interested in um, uh, the way, so in much of the program, it was a requirement these actors be otherwise healthy, meaning that they should be a blank canvas on which you could encode or inscribe a performance of illness or disability, a, for, a form of kind of disability masquerade. And I'm interested in, 
in, in, in thinking about this as a form of compulsory able-bodiedness, to use Robert McCrure's term, but also as an attempt, and this is you know, where my larger interest lies in, in how we can mediate the experience of pain. So whereas those other objects in the book, like a kilogram or a test image manifest in pixels and, and, and metal, right? This is a totally different example. One that's housed in a very idiosyncratic and specific body, right? That has to be maintained in that body and has to account for the weirdnesses and idiosyncrasies of each individual body. And yet, right? And um, relies on that performance to standardize empathy within the medical system. So finally, I want to conclude to, I want to suggest two things. By both standing by and standing in, proxies are taken for granted, right? Um, so a purpose of, one purpose of this project is to say, hey, this thing should be paid attention to, which is kind of a, the first step of any scholarly project. But I think it really matters what kind of attention we pay to proxies. I work historically, so I'm interested in how these things persist, how they repeat, how they get um, challenged and then repaired and recuperated or, you know, eventually um, jettisoned. Um, I'm interested in the kinds of traces they leave or, or the, the kinds of controversies they pick up. So for the Lena image, it, controversies around copyright and later around um, sexism. Um, and this is where I think uh, we have to understand proxies as analogies. So they have to function as if they are the thing they stand for. But I think analogies are really unsettling, right? Analogies have no truth proposition. Um, there's no matter of yes or no in an as if relationship, right? There's only a condition, a time and a place and a relationship, right? Between people or observers or participants in which that analogy um, can hold. And so a, a history of proxies or many histories of proxies as this book includes is nothing less and I hope much more than the account of how some institutions build institutional analogies for the world, right? How they keep those analogies together, how they maintain them, um, in things like paper and pixel and metal and flesh, right? And, and all of the work that goes into keeping that analogy viable. And such a project um, um, assumes that uh, uh, institutions are built on repetitive um, embodied actions or, or as Sarah Ahmed calls them kind of institutional habits and that we can begin with proxies or begin with that process of standing in and proxification to see the ways that bodies move in what patterns with what repetitions, right? To store, to map um, power within an institution. So if I think beyond the standardized proxies in this book to less official, more ordinary proxies to those cardboard cutouts in the grocery store or the conversation that the directors must have had um, with uh, Caleb and Cody uh, Walker, right? That kind of phenomenological experience of being asked to perform as if you are your brother um, repeatedly for the kind of technological marvel that is um, uh, the Fast and Furious franchise. Um, I'm, I'm starting to think beyond um, the methods that I used in this book, right? To imagine other ways of getting at 
that proxy labor, a form of labor I think we, we would now call uh, infrastructural, right? Labor that's um, invisible, not because it's actually invisible, but because it's scrubbed away from view. So for me, kind of dwelling with that human cost and the unbelievable difficulty of actually choosing a stand-in, actually scrubbing away that labor, washing and cleaning it away, right? The kind of itchiness that results when we really look closely at our analogies, that's where the, the politics of proxies are located and, and, and why I've done this project. I'm going to leave it there. Thank you all for being here. And I'm, I'm looking forward uh, tremendously to this conversation. Thanks. Thanks very much, Dylan. That was really fascinating. And um, uh, it's a real privilege to kind of hear how your ideas have unfolded over, over the last decade, in fact. Um, let's go straight to our um, first respondent, Talton Gillespie, over to you. Great. Well, thank you, Dylan. I, you know, I, before we get into the conversation, it's really important that we kind of remember that this is a coming out party for your book. This is a celebration of its arrival um, as best as can be accomplished under these circumstances. So this is an enormous accomplishment. And, and I think I speak for everyone in the room that has a hearty congratulations for having done this to carry this through. It's such a tremendous book. And, and I'm looking through, you may not be able to do it because you know, you're presenting and such, but I'm looking at this list of people. We of course should all be there uh, clinking glasses and waving our copies of the book and being excited for you and shaking your hand. And, you know, given that we can't do that, I feel in some ways, like, uh, I want to be a stand in for all these people. I don't recognize everyone's names. Certainly the ones I do, uh, you've got LSE colleagues, you have, uh, friends and admirers from the field. I'm certain you have students among this pile. Uh, there's even a Mulvin in there. Uh, and I know that we're all sort of wishing that we could fully, uh, congratulate you for having done this and uh, we're getting as close as we can. Um, so I hope you appreciate that. Um, th this is a, a remarkable book. Um, if for no other reason, uh, I can tell it's remarkable for another reason, because I now see proxies everywhere. Um, I think you've made me into someone who's going to notice the cardboard asparagus uh, walking down the grocery aisle and think proxies and get excited about it. Um, and, 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 I think for those who haven't read the book or haven't encountered this idea until now, um, a really intriguing technique for thinking about the way infrastructure that might seem invisible isn't exactly. Um, and so the ways that you find these moments, these moments that sometimes you had to find because you had to dig into an archive, sometimes they were sitting there and we just didn't realize the role they were playing and you helped us understand that. Um, and I find I'm always drawn back to the Lena chapters, not because they're the best, but because um, I think you offer an analytical exercise to people who aren't studying proxies, but are studying a field and don't know how to ask a question about what makes that field tick. And so the Lena chapter is closest to the things that I think about anyway, um, but the ability to say, maybe there's a history here of these values being tangled up that we can study, not by looking at like, big loud debates about those values or their erasure, but the way that they live and, and persist in these objects and, and standards. So um, I recommend that. I think there are probably scholars of health and technology that are gonna just like eat up this chapter about standardized patients. Um, like it offers an anal analysis for each field as well as a kind of uh, theory of proxies, uh, uh, you know, as a whole. So the, the question that I wanted to pose, uh, cause I'm intrigued by the cardboard asparagus, which of course I'm seeing for the first time. Um, 
And uh, at first I, I wanted, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that you at some point tried to buy the cardboard asparagus. Like I think <laughs> I, I like the idea of you walking up to the counter, trying to buy the cardboard asparagus, having them tell you it's not asparagus. And you say, no, I understand that. I want the cardboard asparagus. Is there a price at which I can purchase your cardboard asparagus? Um, so that's a missed opportunity if you haven't done that yet. So I'll put that on your to-do list. Um, Just think, think of the nectar points I'd get. Exactly. Right. All right. This is going to... It's a Sainsbury's gonna... joke for the UK audience. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, so part, part of the examples that you spend the most time in the book on, the kilogram, the Lena image, the standardized patients, it, it, seem, it seemed to me as I was encountering those that this might be a story not just about proxies and what they do, but a story about our obsession with standardization and what is required, right? And part of me was thinking like, if we weren't so obsessed with standardization, if that weren't a priority in these knowledge productions, would we need, would we end up producing the proxies that we need? I wanna add a side to that because the asparagus, cardboard asparagus is much more ephemeral. It's not the kilogram that must stay in a special place and be treated a certain way. And that the persistence of the object is the thing that makes it reliable sort of. Or, or the Lena image, which like was ephemeral and yet then persisted for decades. Um, that the that the you were suggesting the asparagus are kind of like covering an absence. And I think in a weird way that made me think about the standardized patients a little bit, right? Because the standardized patients are offering a doctor someone other than an actually sick person, right? Which would be a training opportunity, but raises ethical questions of like you don't submit a, a doctor who's not ready to real people. So they're, they're covering a gap, right. But an ethical gap, as opposed to a kind of like commercial institutional gap. So, so maybe the question is like, um, how do you, you know, if you want to hand students an ability to kind of like use proxies as a tool, identify them and use them as a way to see things, um, help me think about the kind of tension between the standardization, the thing they offer to standardizing and the thing they offer to kind of like absence filling, are those two dimensions? Are they, are they two kinds of proxies? Um, and, and are they telling us something about our obsession with standardization and our, and our need to cover absences? Or are they there anyway? And that's just you know, where you find them best. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Tarleton. So what is it about standardization and then covering absences? Dylan, would you like to answer that now? Or would you like to um, hear what Kate has to say first? Um, uh, maybe I'll hear what Kate has to say first. Kate, over to you. Sure. Uh, I mean, I just also want to say congratulations. This is uh, such a tremendous book in terms of what it offers to the field, but it's also a, a really beautifully written book. Um, and there's just so much care present in the level of analysis um, in the book is something I really admire about um, you and how you do media studies. Um, so the question that I wanted to ask is, um, I think, you know, part of the work that the book does and Tarleton talked about this is you recover the labor that goes into making, you know, some objects stand in for bigger things. Um, I have two kind of favorite moments from the book and, and one is, um, an image you showed, which is the, the cleaning of the kilogram with a, a chamois, or as we call it in North America, chamois, um, you know, which you also use to clean cars to give another fast and furious uh, nod in this lovely launch. 
Um, and the other moment I love is when you talk, when you explain what a centerfold is um, on page 77, which is a sort of like teaching media history moment, but it's also work you need to do to recover like that moment in the lab where someone makes a decision to tear out part of a centerfold. It's like a gesture and it's, it's minor in many ways, but it becomes so significant. Um, so there's this real attention in your analysis to gestures and everydayness. And what I'm interested in around that is how you attend to moments of caring for objects and caring for others. Uh, like for me, I see this book as contributing to a reemergence of an interest in care in feminist media studies in our current moment. Um, so you talked about cleaning a kilogram, stocking shelves, grocery shopping for someone else, training a standard of empathy in doctors, feeling less sad that Paul Walker is dead because of proxy intimacy with his brothers who uh, of course are named Caleb and Cody. Um, and I see this book again as, as part of this care turn uh, or return. And um, I'm wondering if you could talk about how you can how we think of proxies as sites of care and, and why are care and caring practices so important um, for understanding standards in a new way. Oh, thanks. Thank you so much. Okay, so uh, Tarleton, you, you think about, you, you ask me about how proxies can help us get at standardization. I mean, I, I came to this project because of a research question I was posed by my supervisor to find out something about television standards which turned up those images that were used to standardize the NTSC standard. And my kind of disbelief that the most pervasive moving image standard of the 20th century, which is NTSC color television, uh, was based on 27 still slides, right? That still images were the basis of this moving image standard. But additionally, that there were these super strange representations of pastoral American life, that they basically didn't uh, represent electricity in any way, um, and that they were meant to encode um, normal human vision, right? Um, that they're supposed to capture how um, people are imagined to see color, that they include various amounts of green and blue um, uh, and red. Um, and so they were all of these things, right? There, this entire amalgamation of both cultural and technical um, uh, uh, um, desires and uh, assumptions, right? And immediately any division between culture and technology when you're talking about those images is a phony one. Um, and for me, standards have always been fascinating because of the way that they kind of have to be insistently normative. They have to finally say, okay, this is how things are going to work, right? That's why they're such rich sites. If what you're invested in is a kind of cultural studies of technology, which is to understand how power articulates um, different facets of life, technology, technique, labor, um, form, um, and this kind of cultural, uh, we call it representational or aesthetic content. So that, that, that for me is how um, proxies, um, which, exist in any kind of standard, you have to have a, a kind of model, right, can be a way in, um, it can be a loose thread for sort of picking at that process, understanding that that insistent normativity, um, right, and, and there are lots of people who have, have, have done similar things, looking at model test organisms like the Drosophila fly and Robert Kohler's work, or working objects. But for me, like this work lines up exactly with what what Kate's describing, which is not just to study working objects as these 
idealized representations of the world or as model organisms, but as an, a way into thinking about the work people are doing um, to try to take care of each other or um, when they're invested in an institution, right? Um, and so I think there's lots of reasons to get rid of the Lena Im image and it's now basically unusable because it's become noxious, but it is, um, its history does show this attempt to try to take care of people in the field, right? So this moment in the fifth chapter, I describe fourth chapter, sorry, um, this moment when, when um, a kind of community of uh, feminist computer scientists just start talking about their work environment and documenting, for instance, just the, the pervasiveness of porn um, and the lack of um, input you have in, in choosing a test image, which becomes like these test images or a test sequence becomes like the thing you have to look at all day, every day, right? As you're processing and processing and processing. And one of the editors of an image journal who rejects a call to stop using the image says like, who, who knows, maybe one day we'll have image algorithms that aren't attuned to Lena. Um, and he says it kind of facetiously, right? And for me, that's that's the really telling moment because it totally erases the fact that it's not it's not the algorithms that are attuned to to Lena or Lena, right? It's the people doing the work, right? It's the fact that it's this shared um, object, and it's the kind of refusal to actually take care of your fellow academics or scientists um, that's that's shown up in that moment. Um, uh, so. Yes, I mean, Kate, thank you for identifying what I think is the a, a kind of through line of care. For me, the standardized patient um, chapter is where it all comes together, um, where it's hardest to imagine um, the kind of closed system of, of the proxy relationship um, and where some uh, hospitals and medical schools are trying to incorporate um, uh, people living with disabilities as standardized patients to imagine um, a non-compulsive, uh, uh, um, compulsory able-bodiedness. Um, and so uh, absolutely, that's that's what the, the book is invested in. I don't think all proxies or every perspective on thinking about proxies gets you to that place. Um, for me, that's where I, I try to take each chapter by you know, almost ridiculously beginning with the chamois cloth that you need to scrub your kilogram. Thanks, Dylan, and thanks, uh, Talton and Kate, for those really fascinating comments and questions. Um, and uh, um, congratulations, of course, that you also offered. Well done. Um, Thank you. Uh, we've got a couple of questions in the chat already, um, and, or in the Q&A rather. And the first one comes from Abinaya um, Osman, who says, thank you so much for the talk. In this post-COVID world, where Zoom could be thought of as a proxy for a classroom, and perhaps this book launch as a proxy for an actual launch, how do you think one can address the inequities that exist in this world built around proxies, particularly in the industry of education? Thank you. Thanks for that question. Um, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I, I um, thank you for pointing out <laughs> the uh, the proxy book launch. Um, for me, you know, I, as I think you can tell from the kinds of um, uh, biases and favoritisms I show in in the book summary, right? It would be to return to the kind of material and formal specificity of this 
arrangement, right? The fact that we're using Zoom, um, uh, uh, the fact of our little boxes, um, the fact of where we are actually um, located, um, whether or not we're able to turn our videos on or not, right? All of those features that actually create this specific um, proxy environment would tell us about this moment, right? Would tell us about the political arrangement, um, spatial arrangement, and kind of aesthetic arrangement of our bodies um, in, in, in Zoom space. Um, I think uh, that has already kind of exposed a number of inequities, right? There have been the stories of kind of failed proctor software that, that fails to detect um, uh, uh, um, uh, faces that aren't um, as pale as mine, right? And, and being blamed on training data. Again, another example of the ways image technologies are attuned to a kind of prototypical whiteness um, and was immediately an issue with trying to maintain uh, um, uh, academic exams uh, in the midst of a pandemic, right? I think that that precisely would be one of the um, crises or controversies exposed by our contemporary um, uh, compulsory proxiness. Um, so thank you. Thank you for that question. The next one we have is from um, Jamie Ranger, who's an LSE alumnus and DFIL candidate in politics at Oxford. He says, to what extent does the direction of a proxy changing through time or the persistence of a particular proxy provide theorists with concrete examples that support an account of ideology? So, for example, the leader image supports an account of patriarchal ideology, Yeodeville, American imperialist ideology, the injunction to standardization, mass commodity production, etc. Yeah. To what extent does the direction of a proxy changing through time or the persistence of a particular proxy provide theorists with concrete examples that support an account of ideology? I mean, yes, 100%. I mean, that, that goes directly to um, what I was saying around standardization, because, I mean, we can also think about standardization um, in, in different ways here, right? There's like the ISO standard that, or the NTSC standard that becomes a way of encoding um, an engineering um, 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 principle, but then there's the kind of standardization that's involved in the Lena image, which nobody says like, you have to use this image to demonstrate your results. It just becomes that de facto um, reference point or commonplace. It becomes a kind of standard that gets used again in the reproduction of actual engineering standards. Um, and that's precisely when I was talking about the kind of normative insistence of standardization um, where ideology, if we wanna call it as a, as a way of imagining the world gets grounded um, in a physical artifact, but not in a way that's ever kind of static or totally stable, right? And so each of the, each of the proxy systems that I look at across the book change radically over their history, right? The Lena image gets challenged by Playboy because they own the image, right? And then it gets recuperated on the basis that it's now a scientific object and they should let them use it. Um, or the standardized patient program has been challenged both as being too, uh, um, what do they call it? Too Hollywood, right? Because um, uh, the first standardized patients are brought from the art department at USC and their models. Um, and so it gets, it gets treated as, um, as too squishy, 
right? Not serious enough, um, but gets eventually recuperated and encoded um, as exactly what you say, Jamie, as a kind of grounding of ideology in the material bodies of people who have to act out in standardized ways. Thank you. I think there's a question from Shani. Where did it go? Yeah. I think that that question might have been. Um... Oh no, it got it got upvoted. Here it is. Oh God, it's at the top. There we go. It's at the top. So Shani asks, going back to Shani Orgard from the LSE, um, going back to the asparagus and sandwiches cutouts, I wonder whether we can read them as a performance of instability rather than stability, or as proxies that simultaneously stand in for and yeah. literally paper over the absent thing. What are the implications of this reading for thinking about the potentially more subversive work than proxies do? Yeah, great question, <laughs> Shani. That's, that's so good. I mean, I, I, that goes directly, you know, there's something that Kate and I have talked about a lot. Um, the conclusion of the book is about like, how do we actually talk about infrastructure, infrastructural labor, right? And, you know, infrastructure studies is now this enormous transdisciplinary thing. And one of the principles of infrastructure studies is we, we look for moments of breakdown to expose how things are supposed to work. Um, and that never quite sits well with me because it, A, presumes a kind of, um, it presumes a kind of breakdown that everyone recognizes as breakdown, right? Um, as opposed to the ongoing ways things are always broke down, broken down or barely held together. And so I'm, and it also kind of presumes a, a magic of perspective on the, on the part of the, on the academic. And so I'm interested there in thinking about proxies as more accessible entry points to, um, um, the kind of infrastructural labor, infrastructural work um, that gets at not not the performance of stability, as you point out, but um, the conditions of instability, right? So how can we find ways of actually documenting concealment, right? And partial concealment in each of the examples across the book is um, a story of really like limited concealment, the attempt to crop the Playboy centerfold fails over and over and over again, as people say, I know you cropped it, I know where it's from, we should stop using it, right? And the, the attempt to scrub away um, contamination from the kilogram doesn't actually ever fully succeed. There's a fundamental uncertainty. So for me, this is all about getting at the labor of partial concealment um, as, and I think nothing demonstrates that more clearly than a bunch <laughs> of triangular sandwich cutouts strewn around a boots shelf um, of like how, how badly in this country we are, we are failing to conceal uh, the collapse. Thanks, Lauren. I'm desperate to go and find some of those cutouts still. <laughs> there are too many real sandwiches around now. Um, next question from Kat Tienberg. Uh, she is interested, Dylan, in hearing your thinking about proxies versus representations, performances, enactments, avatars. How do these metaphors help us think um, in relation to everything that's networked, how, in relation to how everything that is networked and digital relates to each other? Yeah. So the connections, I guess, between those concepts and, and, and how they shape our thinking. Yeah, um, it's a great question, Kat, and 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 something I think I'm just starting to to get to as other people kind of take up some of the topics of this work, and people who um, aren't as 
oriented or who are more oriented to say like ethnography, um, my friends in internet studies, um, uh, like yourself who are thinking about um, other forms of, of standing in like the, the avatar or um, even these kind, you know, our, our own um, um, representations here. Again, for me, like, I think, you know, um, uh, uh, it becomes about the kind of material specificity, the kind of way that the avatar like comes to occupy space um, and what it means, like, how do you, um, how do you actually understand uh, um, that stand in as a, as a relational um, technology, like who is it connecting and how, right? How much information does the avatar contain? Where does that information come from? I'm thinking again of a more ridiculous historical example, um, which is uh, uh, discussed in the book around the reasonable person standard, um, which is a, you know, fundamental to common law um, in deciding liability and, and, and cases around say harassment, right, of would a reasonable person consider this to be negligent or would they consider this to be harassment? Um, and in the 19th century in this country, in the UK, that reasonable person was referred to as the man on the Clapham omnibus. Uh, and Clapham in that period, um, is, which is in South London, um, uh, was a suburb of London, right? neither too rural nor too urban. And the man on the Clapham omnibus is a person who would be commuting from central London to the suburbs, right? A kind of every person who would be reasonable. Um, so when I think of avatars and representations, I think of those sort of common reference points that still have a material specificity. Clapham in the 19th century is a very specific place that we can use to kind of decode those common avatars, common representations. Thanks, Kat. Thanks, Dylan. We, we have two minutes left of our, of our session and I just wanted to, to finish with your quick reflections on one of the uh, questions that's in the chat and I guess it will have to be quick, but the ultimate in terms of proxies is a question from Mike P. Can you comment on the logical conclusion of the current technological trend where everything we know will be proxied in, in the form of the so-called metaverse? So a nice small question to finish off the discussion with. <laughs> Yeah, it's not the. This is not the first question about the the metaverse I've gotten, um, uh, and I think goes to the larger point, which is not just that um, we are living with more proxies than ever, which maybe we are, but that um, the dream of standing in the dream of virtuality is front and center um, in how we have to think about. Um, the contemporary politics of data, information, and labor, right? And so for me, the, the metaverse isn't interesting because of what it represents about Facebook's aspirations, but what it represents um, in terms of labor, um, the distribution of who will be working in the metaverse and how, right? What kinds of virtuality it enables, um, what kinds of care it uh, enables or, 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 or um, shuts down, right? Um, and that's what, when we, when it transforms from marketing fluff into lived reality, um, how we'll actually understand that promise of proxiness. Thanks, Mike. Dylan, thank you so much for a great presentation and um, some fascinating answers to those really great questions. Um, 
Uh, also, thanks to Tarleton and Kate for giving such insightful responses um, and, and being here indeed to share the celebrations uh, with Dylan. In the chat, you'll see how you can order the book, which is open access. I can thoroughly recommend it. It's an extremely entertaining read, beautifully written, as Kate said, and really fascinating in terms of the way that it makes us think about these proxies that are all around us um, that we take for granted. But once they become visible, we have the power to start questioning exactly how they're shaping the ways that we see the world. Um, thank you all again for attending. Do tweet about the event using the event hashtag that I popped in the, um, in the chat as well. And we look forward to seeing you at the next event. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.